Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is In Plain Sight, Episode 2. In February 2017, 36-year-old David Dick was brutally murdered. His older brother, Jono, was the only suspect. Jono had a history of mental illness. It was assumed he would be arrested within days. 18 months later, he was still at large and people began to think that Jono was dead by his own hand or far away. But it turned out he was waiting to strike again, and the target was another who'd been near and dear to him. On the morning of August 23rd, 2018, David Camerata was leaving his home for work. This was the same house in Melbourne's north where Jono had turned up in a manic state with a knife four years earlier. There had been a security gate then, but that was gone, and in its place there were motion sensors on the edge of the property and a camera covering the approach to the front door. Earlier that morning, the sensors had gone off. Our next-door neighbour, he was doing some renovations on the house. David Camerata. Now, the tradies that had been working there had been tripping it, tripping it, tripping it, tripping it. So they were starting quite early in the morning. Danny Camerata. But I had had a conversation with some tradespeople and they were working on our boundary and they said, each morning we come and we move your bins. So when that the motion alarm went off, I assumed it was the tradies. So... We heard that someone had crossed the boundaries and didn't check. So that was us sort of letting our guard down, which I wish we didn't. Normally, the security camera would have picked up anyone approaching. And the surveillance camera actually wasn't plugged in that day? No. Our son had unplugged it to plug in the PlayStation. Our motion alarm did go off to warn us that someone was in our driveway. So on that morning, I was playing with the kids and Danny was having a coffee in the the room downstairs. I walk out the front door, didn't look around that day, but I did notice that the tradies weren't there. It was 7am and David was thinking of the busy day ahead as he closed the front door and descended the six wooden steps. The street was empty except for the occasional car and a garbage truck 100 metres away making its way down towards David's place. So you're walking out of your house here? Yep. Walk down these stairs here and, um, you know, I was looking down the street on that morning and as I got to about this step here, I just felt a huge something hit me in the side of the head. His assailant had been laying in wait under the wooden stairs that led from the house to the front lawn. Come from under the landing there behind this this little tree. Yep. And bang. And that's it. He'd been hit with a plasterer's hammer. The hammer had been filed into a point like a chisel, so it was basically like a spike. The assailant wanted to drive the spike into David's skull. Had he done so, David would have surely died instantly but the blow was a fraction of a second too late. 
and instead the weapon plunged into the rear flank of David's neck. The blow sent him staggering down the garden steps that led at right angles from the wooden staircase. He ended up on the driveway below. Critically for David, he stayed on his feet. And then you went down here? Yep, fell down here, basically. Um, and I ended up all the way... I ended up all the way to... Here. We know That's about where I must have stumbled to. 15, 20 metres from the, from the steps. I've taken a couple more steps back, so... I remember being roughly... about here. I actually spun around and the first words out of my mouth were fuck I sort of yelled it because you know I was like what was that something just hit me I was looking at a guy standing there with a large hammer in his hand and I'm like this guy must have just hit me with this hammer and I was a bit dazed at this point in time and I'm looking at his head and he's looking a little bit dirty a bit scruffy and he had a hood on and gloves on as I've come to a little bit more I've noticed I'm like ah it's him. David's wife, Danny. And then I heard men shouting and I could hear David's voice in it. So I went to the front door and David immediately said, Danny, it's Jono. I just went cold, got my phone and started to call triple zero. I remember him saying to me, you had this coming. The only thing I said to him was, let's do this motherfucker. That was literally the only words out of my mouth. Jono's element of surprise was gone. He now stood face to face with David, brandishing the hammer. But then something very strange happened. He dropped the hammer. Probably more than likely, you know, either wanted to fist fight or he was, could have been looking for something else to um, fight me with. I'm not quite sure, but it was a really bizarre thing to do. David is a super fit, stocky man with a long history of kickboxing and boxing. Jono, on the other hand, is best described as a couch potato. At 176 centimetres, he's a head taller and 15 to 20 kilos heavier, but he's no athlete. Without the hammer, Jono stood no chance of getting over David. Like, I was actually a little bit shocked when he dropped it because I thought a fist fight, like him fighting me, is, it wouldn't last five minutes in terms of, you know, he's too weak, he doesn't know how to fight. So it was quite bizarre he had a weapon on him and he dropped it, he wouldn't back himself, put it that way. Well, he only had the element of surprise. Well, that's it. That, that didn't work for him. It worked on his brother. Yep. But not with you, and then you no. were going to fight him, and he was probably going to come off way second best. Yeah, exactly. David began to grapple with Jono, and the pair ended up on the road in front of David's home. And this is where you gave him the beating. This is where he gave him the beating, yeah. And he was on top of me, it literally was like wrestling a toddler. He's a big guy, but weak. I was wrestling him and it was like super easy. I got to a point where I'd had him and I was sort of standing over his shoulder a little bit. And I remember sort of coming in and out of consciousness a little bit, but I was hitting him in the side of the face hard. And for a while, I can't remember how many times I hit him. It could have been like six or seven times. You damaged your own knuckles. Yeah, your knuckles still a bit busted. The garbage truck was now in front of David's house. The camera picked up David on top of Jono, raining blows down on the right side of his head. Jono was not fighting back. Yeah, I remember David having Jono in a headlock and um, punching him quite aggressively, which wasn't easy to watch, even though 
I knew at that point he was okay. I could see at that point, even though I was quite a distance, the amount of blood that was on the back of his head. Jonathan, he looked cold and, yeah, calculative. He looked eerie. He did look eerie. I wouldn't say he looked manic and crazy or anything. He looked very calm and focused. That's what he looked. He looked focused. At what point did it end? What- yeah, I've got a bit of black gap, so I'm sure I'm not 100% correct, but I remember them wrestling I do remember Jonathan realising that I was there and screaming and I I got the feeling that he didn't want an audience. Once he realised I was out, I could tell that he sort of did change. It was sort of, he went from fight to flight, if, yeah, that makes sense. I could be wrong. But David then let go of Jono and tried to flag down a passing car. The driver, perhaps understandably, did not want to get involved and swerved around him. The vision from the garbage truck showed Jono shrugging off David and lumbering off up the street. And then after that, he took off straight up there across the road. And then he must have had a bike, I think, around the corner. He's hopped on the bike and off he's gone. Mm. So I, gra- I ran over and grabbed the hammer. Yep. At this point, the hunter became the hunted. You had the hammer in your hand. Yep. And you were pursuing him. Yep. What was your intention? I was going to chase him and I was going to hit him in the back seat. No, I, I should say that. I, I was going to chase you were. him. Yeah, I probably would have, to be all honest. I don't like thinking about that stuff. Hitting a friend like that is just, it's not in my makeup. To do what he did in terms of hiding under the stairs, listening to me with the kids and hitting me as hard as he did, I could do it, but I wouldn't like to do it. I grapple a lot with the fact that that's what I would like to do. Do you want? There's nothing wrong with that. Well, he was once a friend, you know, and... You don't have a right to defend yourself and your family? Oh, certainly. And I mean, that's the part that gets me the most is I know what would have probably happened if I had called him, and that's the part I don't like either. At this stage, my neighbour, uh, he's sort of grabbed me and he said, hey, your head's not good. I was losing a lot of blood, blood everywhere at this stage, and... Um, he stopped me, which was good of him, and his wife came out and she helped me, you know, helped me with a cloth on the head, stopped the bleeding and all these types of jazz. I uh, know, I was down closer, more closer to the edge of the driveway, okay. and that's when uh, he stopped me. Or I stopped running, I can't even remember now. And that was it. it was good thing right. you did or good thing you did? Both, I think. And that's the last anyone has seen of Jonathan Dick, supposedly. Yep. I do look back on that morning a fair bit and I still kick myself that he got up and ran away but anyway yeah I had wished that I'd sort of held on to him and kept him there yeah so you replay that in your mind always yeah always always and since then I've taken up jiu-jitsu um, which has been amazing even the little that I know now um, on that morning I literally I had his back I could have um, easily you know held him there and um, I could have ended it all The police investigation suggested Jono had come well prepared and with a carefully laid plan. He'd stashed a bicycle nearby, possibly in a half-completed house around the corner. He was pictured on CCTV riding away with a backpack he hadn't carried to the scene. And this wasn't the first time he'd been to the property that week. He was captured on a neighbour's security camera the day before, dressed identically. 
he passed a man walking his dog across the street from David and Danny's house. It's possible that Jono stayed overnight in the same shell of a house, but if he did, he stayed out of sight. He had worn gloves concealing his identity if his attack had been successful, and carried his weapon, the sharpened plasterer's hammer, hidden in the front pouch of his hoodie. He'd tucked his shoulder-length hair up under a baseball cap. He'd waited patiently for his moment to strike. All had gone to plan until he swung the hammer and landed only a glancing blow. When police searched Jono's hiding place under the stairs, they found a knife he'd apparently dropped. It seemed that Jono's alleged plan to kill his brother David was very similar to this attack. He had allegedly planned to strike a heavy blow to the victim's head and then deliver the coup de grace by cutting his throat. However, it seemed that when he failed to knock David out, the alleged killer had no plan B. And that's perhaps why Jono dropped the hammer. I will say this though. On that morning, one thing that I'll never forget was the look on his face when he realised that it wasn't going to plan. He had tried as hard as he could, and I mean, he hit me hard. It was it was so hard. And I was skipping around a little bit thinking, you know, that could have it could have gone really bad. Well, I think if you'd gone down, you would have been dead. Oh, 100%. No, I guarantee that. They definitely wouldn't have stopped there. Again, police were hopeful of an imminent arrest, as Detective Sergeant Lee Smith told Channel 9's A Current Affair. Do you reckon you're going to find him? Yes. Alive? Yes. When? I don't know. Hopefully tomorrow. Eighteen months after Jono's botched attack on his former friend David Kay, he's still on the run. In October 2018, police announced a $100,000 reward for information leading to Jono's capture, and it remains unclaimed. David Camerata. I've had a look at all the rewards pages recently, yeah. you know, and there's something like $14 million out for various crimes, yeah. you know, and there's so many that aren't claimed, claimed you know. So uh, this idea that he must be on his own, I'm swinging away from a little bit. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I... It baffles me as well. I mean, you look at how cold it is outside now. I mean, he may not be in Melbourne, but you look at how cold it is, and to me, he never was a person that could sort of sleep on the streets and food-wise, things like that, yeah. So, I don't know. I, then I start to scratch my head and go, who would have someone sort of living in your house knowing that you've done those things and are pretty violently? We have to try to get inside the mind of an alleged killer suffering paranoid schizophrenia if we're to narrow down Jono's whereabouts. The best clue to his state of mind comes from David Kay. If he was floridly psychotic, then hiding would be near impossible. But he was far from that, at least on the day of the attack. That's one thing I remember distinctly. Compared to the night he came years ago with the knife, he was a complete mess, like just rambling and rubbish and unfocused and compared to the day he was there it was chalk and cheese he was literally like um super focused super calm and almost looked like he was driven almost like he had an agenda which he obviously did the difference between the two is night and day compared to the the other time he he didn't look dirty but he didn't look clean at the same time so he just looked a bit never manicured or you know like he always did yeah it just looked like he always did but then I sort of think to myself, well, if he's staying somewhere with someone, it must be really bizarre to have someone sort of living in a house that can go through those things where he's talking completely crazy. 
I mean, you'd have to be crazy yourself. After the attack on David Camerata, police called another old friend from Jono's school days. Paul Devitt later worked as a plasterer on building sites with Jono. They're concerned that Paul is also on Jono's list. I wasn't really worried until after he whacked David over the head with a hammer, the head of the homicide squad contacted me and told me that I was number one on their list. <laughs> I said, well, I don't think I am, you know. He, he said, well, what do you think that? And I said, well, he's sort of knocked Dave on the head, you know. I... There are other friends from Jono's past that police believe could be on his list. And they're also monitoring people they suspect could be harbouring the alleged killer. To understand why Jono could be a threat to these people, we have to delve back into his past. For David, this nightmare began from the best intentions, from being loyal to a childhood friend and not abandoning his mate Jono in his hour of need. After all this happened especially, I mean, you look back on your relationship with somebody and you sort of think, was it how I saw it? And he was a bit rough in terms of his thought process was different than mine and his lifestyle was different than mine. And I I think that um, my loyalty to him sort of got me to where we are today and I probably shouldn't have kept him as a friend for some of the things that he had said and done in the past. How did you first meet? We met basically, he was living in Malvern with his mum and his two other brothers and his mum sent him to live with his dad up in Wallen. We met on the way home, walking home from the school bus. There was a small group of us that would walk home together, chit-chat, you know, talk this, that, and sports and, you know, backyard cricket, kick the footy, things like that. And then as we grew, obviously, that became, you know, teenage stuff. And This was the mid-1990s. Jono's parents, Carol and Doug Dick, had split when Jono was seven and he went to live with his father at age 13. This is David Camerata. What was his situation like? He'd been living in Malvern, a nice uh, middle-class area in Melbourne's east. Why did he move from Malvern to Wallen? I think that he'd had some issues with his mum and his brothers and um, he told me at one point in time I think he had some counselling. Malvern to Wallen sounds like banishment to me. I believe he was going to Melbourne Grammar. So I think that would have been a massive change, yeah. It certainly was. I mean, Wallen's a pretty small country town. Danny Camerata. Did you like growing up there? Was it a good town? Uh, I didn't like growing up there that much. There was a lot of, I think, a lot of trouble in Wallen. Kids, I think, were bored, so got up to mischief a bit. Being a different nationality, I got bullied quite a bit in... um, primary school so yeah I didn't have the best childhood in Wallen I didn't like it that much pretty boring very boring yep so what, what used to go on you know what was the, what was the general lifestyle I think a lot of the boys basically just got into walking around the streets a lot yeah being naughty so to speak drinking alcohol and yeah drug use was probably around a bit earlier than you would think just through sheer boredom. There wasn't much there. There was a park, the footy oval, and then not much else. So if you went into footy, there wasn't much else for you? No, that's right. I guess everyone knew everyone. Yes. When did you first hear about Jono, Jonathan? In my mid sort of teens, um, he came to our school and he was friends with my older brother and some of, yeah, David's friends and David. What impression did you have of him? Introverted, 
He wasn't very social, not someone that was sort of easy to talk to, just really kept to himself. He liked his things. If I look at, think of him in a snapshot, the first thing that comes to mind was the marijuana use. He was quite heavily into marijuana, um, even at high school. He wasn't into sports. He wasn't social. He didn't ever hold a birthday party for himself or he never went out to dinner with us or, yeah, he was quite um, just stuck to his life and the things he enjoyed doing, which would be probably uh, watching the footy, comic book stuff and drug use. Bongs, was it? Yes, which is a very, um, it's not a very social thing to do. Jono's father had been a senior executive in the finance industry, but had bought a sausage factory and lived in a kind of semi-retirement on the large property in Wallen after splitting with Jono's mother, Carol. He'd remarried and had two more children with his new wife, David Camerata. So he gets sent out there by his mother to Wallen to live with his father. What were the circumstances like in that place? Admittedly, it was, it was super strange. I mean, his dad had, had run a... Um a sausage factory. I don't believe it was doing that well and they would eat sausages for dinner a lot and he used to spend a lot of time eating dinners at my house and things like that. So, you know, the, the dad was just a pretty strange guy and, yeah, the living... When I say living conditions, it was just... It was, it was an odd place. I mean, Dad tried to hand-dig a swimming pool in the backyard with a shovel. So, you know, I'd go up to visit him and, you know... The, the three of us would be out the back in the dark, you know, with shovels, digging a hole in the ground. I mean, it didn't even end up in a pool. It ended up in a, a small spa because, you know, obviously... I don't know if his dad decided just to put him in the shed, but when that happened, a lot of people used to go there, you know, on a Friday, Saturday night, and, you know, we'd drink beer in there or whatever. And during the winter period, he wouldn't go outside. He didn't like to go because there was no toilet in there, right? Mm-hmm. So he used to uh, have bottles of water in there to drink, but because he didn't want to walk up to the house to use the toilet, he would pee in old milk bottles. So he had at least five or six full milk thingies filled and they would stay there for months and months and it and, and became a running joke sort of thing, do you know what I mean? Like it was pretty, it was, but he'd always lived that type of lifestyle. So what was happening with his father? He said his father was odd and there were some occurrences which confirmed that. To give you an example, uh, Jono had a really disdain for sauce. He hated it and there was a few of us there eating dinner one night and sausages, of course, on the menu. And um, that got into some sort of banter about, you know, sauce and why don't you eat it, this, that. And then his dad basically like it was sort of started off as like a joking sort of thing you know young teenagers and his dad sort of dragged him out the front of the house tied him up to the pole each arm extended out and then um he was dipping a sausage in sauce and rubbing it on his face and all around his face and in his lips and I'd never seen him especially show so much rage in my life he was spitting and swearing and I'd never seen anything like it, and nor have I since, but to see how much, how upset he was, there was no laughing. What happened after that? Later on in life, he would certainly say things about his dad that were not nice, about his whole family, basically. By the time David and Danny Camerata got married in 2007, the friendship with Jono was already slipping into David's past, but he wasn't prepared to let him go. He asked Jono to be the best man at the wedding. 
This is a recording of Jono giving the speech at the wedding. It's just an amazing thing. They've actually they've been together since I was 14 years old, I'm pretty sure, or 15. Quite amazing. Um, I don't know anyone else who's first boyfriend and girlfriend and now they're getting married 12 years later, so quite incredible. Give them a round of applause. You were moving in different circles even at that stage and, and Danny had suggested there were other people that you might wanted to have as, as groomsmen and best man but you decided to go with Jonathan, why? Even I sort of look back on it and I can't exactly put my finger on it. I could probably say I had better and closer friends that I was seeing more but for some reason I decided that him being one of the older guys that I grew up with that this was a pretty big day of your life. You know, not every interaction we ever had, I mean, was was bad, but there was quite a few things over the years that probably a normal person would, would look at and go, well, he's no longer a friend for that type of thing. But I let a lot of stuff slide, but yeah. Tell me, how was the wedding? Our wedding was good. Same sort of thing, you know, like uh, I had a great day and we all had a great day. And he got pretty frustrated at the, at the bar just before the ceremony because I can't remember whether it was Richmond were playing and he wanted it on the television, the guy wouldn't turn it up or something like that. Or the guy had put sauce on his, on his hamburger and he was really upset with it. Not everything with him was pretty trivial. The speech? Yep. I, when I see that, I get a sense of, um, not a nice feeling, but he was saying some nice things, which is what you would do as a, as a best man. Um, and I can't really see anything in there that well, that I could put my finger on to go, you know, that was getting crazy back then. Danny Camerata. It's funny, we actually, David and I had a, a big argument because I didn't want him a part of the wedding. We had many other friends that to this day are just beautiful people. I thought that he should choose these people over Jono. But again, I think David feeling um, sorry for him. I think David thought that Jono wanted to. His speech was weird. He looked very stressed. He was sweating. Was it hot in there or was it? No, it actually wasn't. It was the coldest day in March in decades or something. It was a record cold day. You are literally a perfect couple. Like I was saying before, I can't imagine another two people match as much as you do, so congratulations. I actually don't recall it, to be honest. I, I do remember being shocked of his ability to do it because I'd never seen him sort of speak in such an open forum. So I do remember sort of being a bit surprised Maybe I switched off, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. And after that, was he in your lives very much? Not in my life. I was pregnant maybe 12 months after our wedding. I think David might have seen him, oh, I don't even think a handful of times within that 12 months. There was definitely a decline once we got married. David Camerata. What I did notice was that after I'd had my first child, he, that was when I really started to notice a few extra comments that would, would like, we were talking about, you know, the labour and how full on it was because she was in labour for almost 24 hours and it was pretty hard on her. And we were like, oh, lucky for modern science and all this type of thing. He said, well, not really. He's like, she should have died. And, um, you know, that's the way the world sort of weeds out all the weak people. 
Jono's mother, Carol Cloak, told Channel 9's A Current Affair that she never saw a streak of violence in her son. Jonathan was a very gentle man. I've never seen him kill a fly. But David Camerata now looks back and sees red flags in Jono's story. For example, he had an intense interest in serial killers and how they thought. Everyone talks about him being gentle, all that kind of stuff, wouldn't hurt a fly, but he spent a long time researching serial killers and the psychology. What do you remember about that? He'd research a lot of uh, things, but, like, I would as well. We'd watch, you know, whether it be a documentary you might see or something like that, or he'd read books and stuff as well. And he would tell me about certain serial killers or psychopaths and stuff like that. Like, we had a long discussion at one point about the Unibomber, how, you know, he was living in this shack and, you know, all those types of things. Ted Kaczynski, known as the Unabomber, killed three people in the US between 1978 and 1995 in a bombing campaign aimed at people involved with modern technology. For 25 years, Kaczynski hid in a remote cabin where he lived a self-sufficient lifestyle. And that's very relevant, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually. And I, that's one thing that um, I had thought about outside of all the other stuff I'd I thought about that specific conversation that we had. If his friends are right, that's what Jono's doing, living off the grid like the Unabomber. This is Paul Devitt. I think he's under a bridge, you know, some kind of a hole. He wouldn't come out during the day. He knows that everybody's looking for him. He knows that he'll get seen at some point. This is the how smart he is. Gareth Jones. Police are sure, and they've said it in, in public, that someone's helping him. No, I don't believe that. Not for a second. Jono is not the type of person to make new friends, number one. All the friends he's got are from high school. Uh, So for him to dramatically have made new friends later in his life when it's obviously hard for people to make new friends is amazing. In the next episode of Understate In Plain Sight, I'll look in detail at Jono's past. It's the best way I can think of to work out whether he's being looked after or living on his own. In Plain Sight is a real crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolich. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nollywe Shand. Listener.